are that as we live at this point in history, that we can be as assured of the validity of the Word of God as the people in the apostolic age. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is the author of Scripture, he is the interpreter of Scripture, and that he is the one who has faithfully protected this body of revelation to man down through the centuries against many, many different attacks of many, many different strategies. And we pray that the author of Scripture tonight would refresh our minds and to empower us as Christians, as people who look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man, King, and Savior, that he would enable us to understand what he has given to us and to gain discernment as we live in a dark world around us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. On the website, on the CDs, and on the DVD, there's a very useful tool. There's a set of course notes for every lesson, for every part of the framework. On the website, you can download the course notes as an option under the Bible Framework Course tab. If you have either the CDs or the DVDs, you already have those course notes on those as a PDF file. Just a word of explanation about why I handed out part two and where's part one. The problem here is that these parts are actually sections of scripture. In other words, part two that we're talking about tonight will ultimately run from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9. We're going to cover Genesis 1 and 2 for most of the fall. And then in, in the spring and we'll, the winter, we'll, we'll move on to Genesis chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, where we cover the events of the fall, the flood, and the Noahic covenant. But because in our own day, there's such a critical need to think through the implications of the early chapters of Genesis, that's why this series goes very slow. Part 3 picks things up, in, in hopefully in a year, Genesis 12, and we'll run through all the way to the heyday of the Jewish kingdom, which was in David's time. And we'll look at that section of history. So that's what these parts are about. Well, I still haven't answered the question, well, where's part 1? Well, part 1 is a, really an introduction, and part 1 deals with a strategy of why we designed the course the way we designed it, justification for it. And I'm going to, in a few minutes, give you a condensation of part one. So you'll be able to understand what that's about. That will someday, we'll print it. I had a study in my house back a couple of years ago. Some people came on apologetics, and that's really the heart of this part one. And if you've heard me teach before, you kind of know from that. But uh, tonight, I do want to review that. Let me uh, start tonight with the, the objectives of what we're trying to do here. It's my prayer that this course will strengthen you spiritually. That's the whole point here. Well, we're going to deal with some things that maybe you think are a little far out. Uh, maybe some of you will have to think, well, gee, why do we have to cover pieces of geology, astronomy, history, archaeology? Why are you doing all that? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's because that's the way God created the universe. And those deal with aspects of his universe. And the problem we have as Christians is we read our Bibles and then we go off and live in the world as God created it and sometimes the two don't go together too well. In other words, we tend to compartmentalize. 
we tend to think of the Bible as just truth for our religious life. And the Bible really doesn't have much to contribute in other areas. And I hope that we'll undermine that thought if you haven't uh, before too many weeks go by. Uh, the Bible is God's Word, and as the Word of the living God, uh, He doesn't give us textbooks on these areas. He's relegated man to learn those things. However, uh, when He has revealed His Word, and where it touches on these areas, it's true, because God is a God of truth. So the Bible has a lot to say, and in our own generation, we have several problems, one of which is that we tend to to think of God as being too small. The old VW ad that said, think small. And uh, we tend to think small. And part of that, maybe you could say, isn't our fault, because our whole culture teaches us that God is sort of a, a nice topic if, you don't, if it's a non-threatening environment. Uh, we'll bring that up. But otherwise, let's keep God kind of in the background of things. And what that habit does, it starts to shape you intellectually. It starts to create habits of thinking. So now God becomes unrelated to many, many different areas of your life. And that way, God becomes quite small in, in our view. Another aspect of the same thing as far as an objective to the Course, I think what I'm trying to do here is say that Jesus Christ is Lord overall, including the intellect. And we have a lot of Christians who give lip service to the idea that Jesus is Lord, and then they go about intellectually, in their own area of specialization particularly, as though it didn't matter, that he had nothing to say in this area. So we don't pay attention to that, we just go on, and our thoughts and the content and the way we look at life and the conclusions we come to mirror the unbelieving world. And now we've got a problem. Does this mean then that the revelation God has given to us in Scripture is utterly irrelevant to these areas? Doesn't it make a difference? Well, I'm here to say it does make a difference, and it makes a very threatening difference. So that's why we've also designed the course the way we've done it. Features of this course, to try to attain this goal, there's three basic parts, and you'll see these interwoven. These are three perspectives that I've woven together in this particular approach to Scripture. One is that because in the last 150 years, the attacks on the Scripture have largely come in the form of denying that the scriptural events actually took place as recorded. In other words, uh, creation's a nice little sweet story. It tells us great things to tell little kids. It's, it's a nice creation story. Or the stories in the Old Testament were made up centuries later by people who wanted to create a new interpretation of history and so forth. So there's been a downgrading of the validity of the events of scripture. So therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to teach against that. We are going to emphasize the historicity of the events of Scripture. And we're going to concentrate as we go from key event to key event to key event. That's why this course is not a substitute for regular Bible study. We, we go to a little different perspective than your regular Bible study. Here, we go from the event of creation to the event of the fall to the event of the flood of Noah to the event of the covenant that Noah gave and what that has to do with the origin of what we now call civilization. So those are four key events. As I said, this fall, we'll concentrate just on one of those, uh, creation. That's one feature. 
we're going to emphasize the historically valid events Scripture claims occurred. The second feature is that when God speaks and acts in history, he reveals things about himself. We call that doctrine. Truth about God. Things that he has revealed to us. But what happens is we often learn this as though the pieces of truth are like marbles. They're just rolling around on the board. We don't see that they're a web work, that they're interconnected, that this is not just loose marbles. The Bible has a systematic approach. If you start altering a truth over here, you're going to very quickly find you've messed up over here, over here, and over here. You can't manhandle one area of Scripture and not have rather serious implications all across the board. So, the second emphasis that we want to put on, of course, is that all scriptural truth is interrelated. Well, what does that tell us about God? It tells us that he's infinitely profound. God is a very highly rational God. And when he speaks his mind, he speaks very coherently. That what he tells Isaiah in the 6th century, and 7th century, in that period of the prophets, what he tells them, he had on his mind when he spoke to Abraham. And what his thought was to the prophets are the same and interrelated thoughts that he had to Abraham. And it's all part of a grand scheme all the way to the future when Jesus Christ returns to the planet and we have this climax of history that the Bible says we are heading toward. And at that point, we're going to see that a lot of those little features, those little apparently marbles, those disconnected pieces of truth, why? Wait a minute. They're all connected to what's yet to take place. So there's an inner coherence to Scripture. And I think that besides the validity of the historic events, it's the coherence of Scripture that gives you and me the assurance of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And this is a tool to help you strengthen your faith. And finally, the apologetic strategy. What we're going to do is we're going to teach the Bible against its opposite. I guess that there are many, several teachers here, and I think you all agree that uh, if you can create a little controversy over the subject, usually people pay more attention to it. And since the Bible was not given into a vacuum, the Bible was given into a world hostile to it. Think about it. All men are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. It's to us as sinners that God speaks. That means he's speaking to a potentially hostile group. Frankly, he's speaking to a group of very messed up people. And the Bible is always has to be seen against its environment. Years and years ago, there was a famous professor at Harvard, G. Ernest Wright, who was one of the founders who did a lot of work in biblical archaeology uh, in the United States and Old Testament studies. And G. Ernest Wright once wrote a book called The Old Testament Against Its Environment. And in two weeks, in one of these handouts, we'll have an exercise where we're going to look at Genesis 1, part of Genesis 2, and I'm going to give you a text from the same time in which Genesis was written by the pagans. We're going to look at a pagan text, and we're going to say, okay, here's the Word of God, here's the pagan text. They were both written in approximately the same time in history. Now let's sit down and compare. 
Let's not buy this thing, oh, the Bible is just an ancient book and it was just written by these old people years ago didn't really didn't really have it together and so forth. We are going to look at actual texts from the period to see what people, contemporary to the Bible being written, what those people were thinking. And when you start to see the difference between what was written in Scripture and what was thought about in the centuries in which that Scripture was written, you will see there's a tremendous difference here. And what is that difference? That is the difference of the Holy Spirit working in history. It's like, you know, when a scientist does an experiment, he likes to have a control. When you're testing medicine, you have a control group. And then you administer the medicine over here to the other group, and you check differences. Well, we have a control. What we have is the ancient text. That's the control in the sense that's what people would have thought about had God not interfered in their thinking. The scripture is what man thinks about when God interferes. So now, by measuring and contrasting the scripture with its environment, we've got a grand experiment that validates and shows how the effect of the Holy Spirit is in our intellect and in our heart. Okay. So we're going to look then at three things. The Bible as historic events, the Bible as truths interrelated, and then we're going to look at apologetic strategy. For the rest of the evening, I'm going to take you on a very quick tour of part one, which you don't have, because that's the prelude to part two and understanding why we all of a sudden start the way we do. If you open your Bibles to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, is a classic reference to what we call apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean you apologize, but this word, this is what it looks like in the Greek, is the word from which in English we get the word, we get the word apologize, unfortunately, but apologize, when it originally was in the Greek form here, apologia, had a lot more powerful connotation. And that's the word Peter's using in verse 15 when he says, be ready to give an answer to every person that asks a reason of the hope that is in you. Now that word, give an answer, or some translations, uh, one I have here says, to make a defense. Now you can see what this means. What this word actually refers to is when you are accused in court, then how do you defend yourself? What is your defense against prosecution? Okay? Apologia. So, what Peter's telling us, and he's telling normal, everyday Christians, he says you've got to be ready to make a defense to everyone that asks a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet that's not optional. In other words, it was expected of early Christians that they could give some account of themselves when asked. Now, some cautionary statements about verse 15. Let's look at all of verse 15. For many years, I concentrated so much on the second part, I forgot the first part. Why would people come with a question? Well, it's because they see something in your life or something's happened. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, always being ready to make an answer. And if you read the context of 1 Peter 3, this is the context of suffering, and people see Christians, and Christians don't react to the same kind of suffering that the non-Christian does, and so he says, well, how come you handle your life this way? That doesn't work for me. What's the, what's the deal? How do you guys, do you take pills? Are you on drugs? What's the problem here? What makes you different? So, 
uh, apologia comes about after there's been some event, some incident, something has tripped this off that causes people to question you about your faith. Something has happened to cause people to ask you. This is not ramming an answer down somebody's throat whether they ask for it or not. It's not being rude. It's not being impolite. It's just being ready to give an answer. Now, that's not saying that people aren't going to like are going to like the answer you give. Let's see what happens. Uh, we'll see in just a few minutes of what happened when Paul tried to give an answer. Jesus gave an answer too, and they didn't like that. So we're not saying people are going to like the answer. We're not saying people are going to be totally convinced by your defense. All the scriptures asking us to do is to at least be ready to give some defense of our faith and take advantage of the opportunities when we're asked. Now, that's for the believer. But you know, apologia is used in the Bible for the non-Christian. Because the non-Christian comes to a point where he's going to be challenged. And he's going to have to come up with an answer. So see the, uh, the apology or the apologetic of the unbeliever. Let's turn from 1 Peter over to Romans. Romans chapter 1. And there the word is used again. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Now, this is a case where it's the non-Christian who is asked to give an answer. Except in this case, God is the one that asks. And notice what it says in verse 20 toward the end. See that word where it says, so they are without excuse? That's the word apologia. They are without a defense. Out of defense in what? When the non-Christian is finally judged, one of his key defenses is going to be, and you guessed it, it's going to be, well, I never had enough information. God's existence wasn't clear enough to me. I needed more information. How unfair of you, God, to hold me in the last of my life accountable when you never gave me clarity of information. I never knew. Excuse me, I plead ignorance. That's the, the key, apparently, the key defense that will be used. The plea of ignorance. Innocent ignorance. And Paul in Romans 1, we'll get into it later, but I just want tonight just to see a little piece here. In verse 20, what he's saying is, because God's creation inevitably shows his existence, whether people think so or not, the statement here is clear, that all men have sufficient revelation to be held accountable. Okay, all the arguments you want to, well, gee, Thomas Aquinas' medieval version of the ontological argument does not convince me. Well, too bad. Creation is still there. Your heart is still structured the way it is. We still have conscience. And Paul insists that we all have sufficient information whether we can construct intellectually 100% persuasive arguments or not. So, all men are without defense. Now, if you drop down chapter 2, verse 1, he deals with people who are judging, always going around judging other people. These are more the self-righteous people. And even with those, what Paul says, and the Holy Spirit working through the Apostle, he says, therefore you are without excuse, you people who go around judging other people. So, all men have no defense before the bar of justice at the great white throne where Jesus Christ will hold court. There is no apologia in that moment in history. None. 
everything is off at that point. Because we'll come face to face with a God who knows our heart. And he's not going to be snowed, and we can't use smoke and mirrors, as the expression goes, to deflect his attentions. All right, so that's apologia, that's the background. But what we are trying to do is study how, as Christians, we're to construct our faith or construct our explanations to the non-Christian. Really, what we're talking about is evangelism. Apologetics and evangelism are not two, two different things. They're basically the same thing. Let me show you why. Let's turn the book of Acts, and we'll just hurriedly go through three or four times when Paul had to give a hurried explanation of the faith. Turn to Acts 14. I've, I've picked context where Paul had to do it before pagan audiences. I, didn't, I deliberately am not going to those passages where Paul had to face Jewish audiences because that's not fair for what the point is. Jewish audiences already knew about God, so we're going to talk about just the pagan. That is, the Gentiles who knew nothing about the Old Testament. Now, in, in chapter 14 of Acts, verse 11, Paul has done some ministry, some works of ministry. Remember we said in 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 2, the deal there was something sets off the apologia, some event. In this case, what set off the situation was Paul's ministry, his missionary ministry. And when the multitude saw Paul done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have become like men have come down to us. Now Paul's got a real problem, and missionaries face this problem all the time, and I'm convinced we face it, and we don't even know we're facing it. Here's the problem. The problem is, we think we've communicated well, and the reception came in totally backwards. You know, you sit here and you think, I finally communicated to this person. And then they come out with a remark and say, holy mackerel, were they in the same room? Are we talking the same language? Did it get across? And that's Paul's problem right here. He's gone through, and you imagine he must have been a very clear preacher. And look what they've done. They've in, totally interpreted in verse 11, that's their analysis of the events. Now, what's wrong with that analysis? Well, do you see the little word G-O-D-S in there? What have the pagans done? Have they truly re-examined their fundamental beliefs? No, they haven't. What they have done, and this is what we have to watch. Here's the gospel. We project this gospel out. So here we are. We'll say, there's the Christian. Halo. Okay? The Christian is projecting the gospel. And he, he's got this little package here. And he says, boy, I've really communicated. Here's what happens. Unbelief, just like a big amoeba, slurps around that and absorbs it and reconstructs it and misunderstands it. The challenge as Christians are, and that's what we're faced with throughout this course, as we deal with event after event, you're going to see how truth gets slurped up with this big, sloppy, slimy amoeba of unbelief. And it reinterprets everything. The best of intentions, the clearest messages, get totally reinterpreted because we know somebody behind all that. But it happens. And I'm sure many has been the time and Bill's up and up here teaching and preaching and then later on he'll meet somebody or they'll talk to him or something and they'll come out with something and he'll just wonder, you know, what am I doing up here? Right, Bill? <laughs> you know, all the time I spent, I just, what went wrong with the transmission? So Paul had the problem. And they began calling them by the God's name. So they had reinterpreted Paul's ministry inside of their framework. 
the framework didn't change. All they learned from the Christians was a few vocabulary words. So now the problem Paul faces is, how do I communicate so they don't keep reinterpreting wrongly what I'm saying? So what Paul does here, and you see him doing this several times in the New Testament, he strikes a blow at their whole framework. Two Sundays ago, I gave the illustration. I'll give it again. What Paul does to the pagan mind is like the following scenario. Imagine a person says, I've invited the Apostle Paul in and he's going to help my life. He's going to teach me a good message about how to live a better life. Make the analogy of your house. And so mentally, what this person is really thinking of is that Paul is an interior designer. He's going to come and he's going to go into one of the worst rooms in your house and he's going to redecorate it for you. Wallpaper, paint, new furniture, nice scheme. He's going to redecorate your house. And so the great day comes when Paul is going to arrive at the house. But instead of walking up to the house with a ladder and wallpaper, they hear this big noise in the front yard. And they look out the window and it's a big bulldozer. Uh Uh-oh, now what have we asked for? Well, Paul's coming not to redecorate rooms. Paul's coming to destroy the house and rebuild it. And that's what he's doing here. He cannot any longer communicate pieces of the gospel until he erases this thing. And so we have to deal apologetically with a strategy. How do we friendly assault the problem of the framework of unbelief? How do we shatter that? If we can't shatter the framework of unbelief, it will rise up again and again and again and immunize the person against whatever you say. It's just like putting wax on a car, water just goes right off of it. So you have to strike at the very framework of paganism. And if that isn't dislodged, all the rest of the work is just wasted. So now how does Paul approach this? He says in verse 15, we believe that many of these sermons are are abbreviations. Luke probably gave us just a summary of what he did. He probably spent more time than what we see here. But these are true excerpts that the Holy Spirit has chosen, apparently in the text, to depict the thought of his heart as he, as he spoke to these people. He said, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you are. So he denies this deification. He says, look at us. The trouble with you pagans is that you reconstruct gods after men. Ever read the mythologies? We'll read some in, in, a, in two weeks. But what are the gods always doing? Fornicating, stealing, and fighting each other. What do men do? Fornicate, steal, and fight each other. So what has happened? We have made gods after our own image. And see, he cuts into that right away. He says, we're not gods. He says, we're the same nature as you. We preach the good news to you in order that you should turn aside from these vain things to a living God. Now notice something right there in that sentence. Observation. What's the big verb in that sentence? Look carefully. Paul isn't on an educational mission, ultimately. What he is on is a repentance mission. What he is asking is for repentance or turning. Now, I want to look at this word repentance here for a minute. The biblical word for repentance, from the standpoint of apologetics here, means more than just something emotional, okay? The word repentance here means 
he's reaching so far down in the depths of the mind that he is altering the framework of everything. That is, goes all the way down to your socks, in other words. It's deep, profound alteration because it comes from the heart. It's not a surface intellectual thing. It comes from the heart. And Paul says you have to turn from these vain things. And notice, now he's giving them truth and he's kind of nasty here. The word vain is a technical word. It's used from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, all is vanity and so on. Uh, James uses it. Here's the picture of the word vain. The word vain has the image of breath on a cold morning. And there it is, supersaturated air. And, of course, it dissipates very rapidly and it's gone. It seems to have substance, but it really doesn't have substance. And that's the word the Bible universally uses to describe the pagan mind. The pagan mind is vain. If you've ever read the classic Pilgrim's Progress and you read about Vanity Fair... And we think of Vanity Fair, unfortunately, in our own, you know, present English, the way we use the word vanity, we piece of furniture to something else. And it's too bad because the word Vanity Fair, as it was used by those Christians who wrote that, they used it in a technical meaning, very precise way. Vanity Fair was the beautiful vanity. Fair. It's beautiful. It's attractive. Paul's not saying it's not attractive. That's what makes it so effective. It is attractive. The problem with it is it has no substance. It doesn't last. In particular, it doesn't last before God at the great white throne judgment. In particular, it really doesn't last through the trials and tribulations of life. It falls apart. And so, if you put all your eggs in that basket, you lose your eggs. All right, he says, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, of course, by putting that adjective on there, what is he saying about their God? They're fake. They're phonies. Now, a living God is one who moved the furniture in history. Boy, I always like it. There's a gender difference, I think, in the way men and women approach Scripture. And I think one of the things that men like to see is a God who flexes his muscles once in a while. And it's exciting to a man to read, like, for example, Exodus chapter 15, where all the people get out on one side of the Exodus, and they've gone through the sea, and they sing this song in Exodus 15. And you ought to see that, that Pharaoh song in there. It's amazing. Handel has a rendition of it. But it's everybody rejoicing at Pharaoh getting smashed in the sea. And it's kind of bloodthirsty. Very full of violence and so on. And that's the kind of thing, I think, that attracts men. Not that men just like violence all the time, but it's a good kind of violence. In a sense, not a violence for violence's sake, but violence to show the strength of Almighty God brooking no opposition. In other words... We have a big God, and when he moves, he moves in a big way, and nothing stops him. So, what Paul says, we have a living God, a God who interferes into history, and now, the great qualifier, and those of you who have some of your translations, you'll notice, is a comma after God, and the rest of that sentence is, uh, is either referenced in the margin, or in some translations you'll see it, it's printed a little bit differently. That's because that's the reference. And notice what it's saying about God. What is it the one thing that more than anything else identifies the God of the Bible? He is the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. The event of creation. So here Paul is. Now if Paul were living today and he ever said something like this, I can just see it now. 
he goes home, he gets a phone call. And the phone calls from some, uh, some dear Christian academic. And this man with his three PhDs says, Paul, now I, I think you kind of messed up a little bit. You know, you really shouldn't quite have, have raised those controversial topics like creation in that context. You've got, you got people all excited over the wrong. You should have started with Jesus. Now, nobody was a bigger fan of Jesus of Nazareth than Paul. Where do you see Jesus in the context of this passage? Not there, is he? Why isn't he there? Because, folks, there's a logical progression to get to Jesus. And you've got to follow the progression to get to Jesus, or when you get to Jesus, you get the wrong Jesus. Jesus, in the New Testament, is the God and man united in one person forever. And we don't know what that means. We haven't got a clue to what that means if we don't first know who God is and who man is and the creator-creature distinction. We've got to know who the creator is, who the creature is, and after that, we'll get to discuss who Jesus is. Because Jesus is God the creator coming incarnate inside a creature. And that's tough stuff. And that's why, if you look at your Bible, look at how many pages are devoted to pre-Jesus orientation. Two-thirds of the book is pre-Jesus. Now, doesn't that sort of register a, a hint that when the Holy Spirit's going to present Jesus in history, there's a little preparation involved? And yet, what happens? On the mission field, we find again and again, less so in these, modern, in these last decades, but 30 or 40 years ago, translators would go out into these tribes. And you know what the first text of Scripture they translate? Gospel of Mark. You say, well, wait a minute. The Gospel of Mark is four-fifths of the way through the Bible. What are you guys translating the Gospel of Mark for? Why don't you start with something in Genesis? And then there were some missionaries in New Tribes Mission who finally got it together and they went ahead and in villages and they found out a tremendous response. Why? Because they started at creation and worked forward just like the Holy Spirit did. It wasn't a new curriculum that New Tribes Mission figured out. They just went back to the Bible, that's all, and followed the same progress. So you don't start with Jesus. You start with who and what God is. And it's that event, that creation, the creation of all things that starts to eat away this thing, this amoeba, this slurpy little slimy amoeba that is the energizer of pagan thought. If you don't strike at the framework, you will never get the message across. All right, let's see how he follows that up. And he says, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own. Yet he did not. Notice verse 17 now. Gives some more information. He says, he did not leave himself without witness. Notice the word witness. Witness. Now, isn't it interesting that one could say again, the non-Christian could say, well, God, you know, your existence really wasn't clear to me. I mean, I really wasn't persuaded by those Christians always come up with those uh, the arguments for God. I, I, this didn't send me too far. <laughs> too bad. But what does it say here? It's not talking about an argument. It just simply says, God did not leave himself without witness. He did good. He gave you brains from heaven and fruitful seasons. In other words, not only is God the creator, not only do we have that, but he is the preserver and the sustainer of creation. And Paul insists, the way he's talking here, that the pagan down in his heart knows that. He knows that. He realizes that the pagan is, in his heart of hearts, aware of these truths. All right, let's look at a diagram here for a minute. And 
We'll try to diagram some features of the pagan mind. What do I mean by pagan? Pagan is a noun. Look it up in the dictionary. If you look it up in the dictionary, basically it means a person. It's not a pejorative term. It's not saying we have a connotation to immoral or something. That's not true. There have been many moral pagans. They've written very moral literature. The word pagan doesn't refer to morality or the lack of it. The word pagan simply says that it's someone who stands outside the culture of the Bible. It's a demarcation of the human race, not into culture as such, but those who at least give lip service to the God of the Scriptures and those who don't. Those who are, for example, Hindu, Buddhist, and so on and so forth. The pagan mind. However, one of the other qualifier I'll put in a parenthesis underneath the pagan mind, the pagan mind is nothing other than the carnal mind. And we all share the pagan mind, so we can't get proudful about this. It's also the carnal mind. And what does Paul say about the carnal mind? The carnal mind, he says, is at enmity with God. And what else does he say about that carnal mind? Not only is the carnal mind at enmity with God, it can't be subject to his authority. So, ah, now we know some features about this pagan mind. Brilliant mind. Moral mind. But it is at enmity with God. And so at the deepest level, if you can structure it like levels, down at the lowest basement level of the pagan mind, there is an awareness that God is here. There is an awareness that God sustains. We'll say that this is, he has a God consciousness there. And you know why we have to say that? If he didn't, he wouldn't be held accountable. What is God going to do at the great white throne judgment if somebody argues from ignorance? He's going to say, sorry. I know, and you know, that you knew I was there. You turned away from me. You deliberately put me aside. And it was a conscious choice on your part. Sorry. Now, on top of that, we have a negative response. We have a rejection of that. And it can be cloaked in a very moral cloak. But the rejection is a rejection of this. It's a cover-up of that. It's war with that principle that I will tolerate you talking about God, but the God of the Scripture, that kind of living God, I cannot tolerate. And in order to do that, then further stories of material are added to this structure, and that's the amoeba that swallows up truth. It's a special framework that is developed to insulate the pagan mind or the carnal mind from the pain of the guilt of knowing they are in rebellion against God. Okay? That's the structure of what's going on. And that's why confrontations like we're seeing here in this text are not pretty. Let's see what happens. In verse 17, Paul asserts that God had witnessed all the time. And then in verse 19, look how quickly. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the multitudes. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And you say, well, well, that was a successful sermon. That lasted for about five minutes. Is that what we're going to follow? Well, possibly, yeah. We may see that thing in our civilization in our time. The battle's heating up, in case you haven't noticed. No more gray areas. It's Christian or non-Christian. And each side, the wheat and the tares are growing side by side. So, 
we have God consciousness, we have the rejection, we have this framework. And what Paul's doing, he's assaulting this framework, and at the same time, he's doing it, he's saying, you are aware of God, and you're going to be convicted of this rejection. That's how he answers. That's how to give an apologetic. And it's hard to do that. You know, it, it gets personal so fast. But notice that Paul is not afraid of touching what we will call the secular things of life. Look what he says in verse, again, verse 15. God created the earth and the sea. Why do you have to put the sea in there? Fish was on their mind. Why did he put that there? Because that's part of the universe around us. All things God created. He's talking about the weather. He's a weatherman. I appreciate that. Verse 17. Gave you rain from heaven. Just did that again today. And that's a meteorological process. Why is that suddenly get into a religious discussion? Because all things come from God. All right, we could go on and on and on in this vein, but I think you get the point of how Paul handled himself. If you are curious, Acts 17 is another case, Acts 26 is another case, where you can look where he had similar parallel conflicts. In conclusion here tonight, I want to go over to Genesis 3, though. We're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 3 later on, but... Tonight, let's just warm up by looking at how God handles an apologetic. I hope that when we get a little further along, you'll have a renewed appreciation for these simple stories of the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I've always been helped spiritually by these stories. You know, they're so simple, you can tell them to a child, but you can spend your life thinking about them and mulling them over and and praying about the applications and letting the Lord give you insights into this. In Genesis chapter 3, you have God in the first counseling session. Now, isn't this interesting? This is a counseling session. This is a confrontation session. And you'll see in verse 8 how it all started. Because what, the, one of the things we want to do here is God faces a carnal mind now. Now all of a sudden Adam's got one. Eve's got one. They're all messed up. So now God has to start dealing with this thing. And you'll notice he doesn't come to them and say, I've got three proofs for my existence, Adam. You notice that? God takes it for granted that his existence is not an issue. That all men deep down in their hearts know very well. And to pretend it is an issue already grants the validity of the mind. Think about it for a minute. If we admit that you have to prove that God exists. Now we will have a way of doing this indirectly when we get into God. I'm not knocking it all. But if too fast you personally agree that this person you're talking to really needs high-powered proofs that God exists you've bought into the wrong question. You just bought the question and you shouldn't have. Don't agree to getting deflected off a wrong strategy somewhere. Don't get faked out. Now, I say that, I get faked out all the time. But our goal is not to get faked out by having the other person's agenda ride yours. Now, if we sit here and we say, Mr. Unbeliever, and he says, oh, uh, Mr. Christian, I'm sorry. You know, you're, I'd like to become a Christian, but it's just, it's just not clear at all to me that even God is there. Now, at this point, it may not be clear to him because of what he's done to his mind. But to presume 
that we have to have proofs for God's existence is to accept already the fact that the carnal mind says evidences of his existence are so weak, are so impotent, so unclear. Well, we can't agree to that. You notice when Paul went to that pagan audience, he didn't agree that they couldn't know God. He said, he's all around you. What's the problem? You've got the problem. It's not God's existence is the problem. It's your eyeballs. You've got problems. Alright, so now in Genesis 3, God never stops to prove his existence. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Now think of this diagram of the carnal mind again. Let's look at that and compare it to Adam's behavior. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves. Now what does that tell you? Start making inferences here. If they're running from just the sound of God, what does that tell you about what they already know? Do they have any question that he exists? No, they don't have any question he exists. Why are they hiding? You don't run from something unless you're pretty sure that it's there. So, see the God consciousness? Adam and Eve didn't lose their God consciousness when they fell. They kept it. And it was so real to them that it caused terror. Because now they knew he existed and now they had short accounts. That was the problem, not his existence. And so... The Lord said, and notice in verse 9, and that's again a, a sort of model for us in, a, in apologetics, is he's gracious. You know, he, he could have just walked in and said, oh, you screwed up, huh? Well, fully. Bye. See you around. But rather he works with them. And he's indirect, too. And this is part of grace and being politic and being gracious to people. Where are you? Now, that's a double-edged question. It could be interpreted as God didn't know where he was, but we know that's not, that can't be the interpretation. He might be calling out, where are you, hoping that they'd raise their hand, admitting that where they were there. Or he could be asking, where are you, Adam? Think about it. Where are you now? Where's your life now? Think about what you just did. Now, he says... I heard the sound. Look at what Adam does. This is classic. This is our classic. We all do this. This is the carnal mind at work. So Adam comes out, and, he had, and the carnal mind will always admit pieces of truth. Now look at the first piece. I heard the sound of the in the garden. Is that true? Yes. That's the piece of truth. And I was afraid because I was naked. Now the first part of that sentence is true. But the last part, that's not in verse 8. They were naked before. Why should nakedness be a problem. It wasn't before. Why now? So that's another implication of something else. Anybody catch verse 10's implication? If Adam fears God because he's naked, who made him naked? God did. Now you see already the pagan minds at work. You see, the problem is, you made me this way, God. I'm afraid because I'm naked and you made me this way. So there's that little thread of don't blame me, I'm a victim thing coming in, see? Carnal mind. And that's because what is it that carnal mind's rejecting? Even in a face-to-face standoff with God himself, where his existence can't be denied, the carnal mind is still trying to get around this problem of God's holiness. So it comes up with excuses. This is sort of an invented 
state-of-the-minute theology here to get around a little problem we've got. So I think I'm going to start shifting the blame ever so slightly over to him. So it starts in verse 10. Now, verse 11, here's God coming back to that. Notice that God doesn't come back to the sound of the garden part of the sentence. He doesn't come back to the verb afraid in verse 10. God, as he always does, he just like a razor, he just goes right for the part that's wrong in verse 10. Who told you that you were naked? And evidently that was the signal that their awareness of their nakedness that they had gone from the garden. Now he says, did you eat of the tree? Did you disobey me? And verse 12, we come back with, well, the woman that you gave. Oh, so now the carnal mind takes one step further. Not only did you make me naked, but you gave that creature there to me. And she, I wasn't able to control her. And so she misled me. Not my fault. Hey, no problem here. That's the problem over there. Blame shifting. So these are features. And it's a, it's a little story, but it's a very serious story. It's a very profound story. And you can sit here and you can meditate. Do you realize that you can develop counseling theory just out of this passage alone? Counseling theory? Do you realize that there's things said in this short few verses that outdo anything Sigmund Freud ever thought of? And yet we have people, Christians included, and this is not to knock the areas of psychology about, but we have people devoting thousands of hours to study of these things, therapies and this and that, and never spend attention to the God of the universe who created man and modeling the first time you had a counseling session in history and you had the man who made everything doing the counseling. Talk about a model. How about doing a little study here to improve counseling theory and therapies? Oh, don't bother the Bible. It's an ancient book. Okay. All right. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And now notice the buck passes again. Oh, well, it was the serpent that did that. Well, we all smile because we all know that's our heart. There's nothing that's not true in that passage. We all know, intuitively know. We all intuitively know there, but for the grace of God, go I. And anything that we have tonight in our hearts as Christians that doesn't fit this is there by the grace of God. It's there by the Holy Spirit taking His Word and cutting this stuff out. Pieces of it, yes. But that's the sort of problem that we face in apologetics. We face a situation where all this is embedded in a person's mind. And we're sitting there outside trying to feed gospel pieces. And the problem is, unless the Holy Spirit guides us in how we do that to disable and, and knock out this framework, we'll always be unsuccessful. So that's why we want to follow a strategy, which we now will give you a name for it. The strategy is the strategy of presuppositions. And I want to explain the word because people sometimes have misconceptions about this. Francis Schaeffer was one who used the word presuppositions often in his writings, if you've ever read his works. This can be misinterpreted, so. Presuppositional. I'll you put another word, classical. There's a bona fide discussion going on in Christian circles for the last 30 to 40 years about which strategy works best. 
I, this is not a theology class. I'm not going to bore you with all the details and the controversy, except I want to identify where I'm coming from if you do this reading outside. Basically, in the 20th century, some Christian scholars in Philadelphia, Westminster Theological Seminary, people who had left Princeton, Princeton started going liberal. And the fundamentalist faculty resigned from Princeton Theological Seminary back around World War I and left that seminary and went over and started. They had no seminary. They were just lost. They had they, they lost libraries and everything. So they went over to Philadelphia and they set up what was then called and still is Westminster Theological Seminary. And those scholars began to reevaluate what went wrong. What went wrong at Princeton? Why did we lose it? Why did the non-Christians ace us? Why did they, they win? And several of the men on that faculty came to the conclusion that we Christians were not scriptural enough in the way we were defending the faith. The liberals had argued that if a person is here, there's a genuine area of neutral ground. And that the Christian can be over here, the non-Christian can be over here. And this, this, non, this neutrality exists in between the battle lines. And it was thought that, like a railroad track, if this is one railroad track going like this, and the non-Christian railroad track is going like this, that by a series of arguments, that you could divert the non-Christian from his railroad track and come over here and join the Christian. It would be a continuous railroad track. The rails, there was no break in the rails, so the railroad cars could come across this in a continuous fashion. There was no big gap, in other words. And what they found out was, and we'll see this, I, as I say, I'm anticipating somewhat the details of the course, but you'll see immediately in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 of the notes that you'll hand out, as we'll discuss, that this, these ploys didn't work very well. And the reason is because they inherit non-Christian ideas and then try to defend the Christian gospel on the basis of the non-Christian idea. Let me give you an example that's easy to see. Let's take Adam and Eve. After Satan talked to Eve, what had he talked that woman into doing? Think about it. Here's Eve. Over here she has one claim. The claim here is that if she eats of the tree, she's going to die. Over here, Eve has another claim that if she eats of the tree, she will live, that she will not die. Now, Satan has very cleverly got her to buy the question. Because what has the woman done? Think about it. She's immediately got herself in a position, she thinks she's got herself in a position of neutrality. And so now Eve is going to have to test. Gee, you know, I mean, I've got a, one statement here, the opposite here. How do I tell which one's true? How did Eve try to tell which one was true? She ate of the tree. Did she find which one was true? Yes. Did she disobey when she did it? Yes. What was wrong with Eve's approach? What was wrong with that woman's methodology? That what was wrong was that she presumed that she was the final authority. That she had elevated her decider. That she would decide whether or not God was correct. Once a person moves into that position, this neutral ground, they become the ultimate presupposition. In other words, the presupposition here, the ultimate presupposition, is that I will decide. Now, what the presuppositionalists said, no, we made a mistake. And as the, as the Christian church, we really made a mistake here. We should, we should learn from it. You know, we, we messed up, but let's learn from it. Let's never do this again. So there came out of this a presuppositional apologetic, which says, if there are two railroad tracks, 
And here's the non-Christian going down his railroad track. And here's the Christians on his railroad tracks. There's no connecting track between the two. In other words, to get a train that is on that track over to this track, we have to derail the train and move it over car by car. And that's a diagram of what repentance is all about. There's no smooth track. There's a sudden catastrophe where the train is derailed and then it's bodily picked up and moved to the other set of rails. That's presuppositionalism. There has to be a ground shift of presuppositions from one thing to the other. A deep decision in the heart that, unlike Eve, I am not going to relocate to myself the authority to decide whether or not God is true. I must say that he is the authority and he decides what is true and what is false. So, the ultimate presupposition of the Christian, then, is the fact that God's word is the standard. The ultimate presupposition in the neutral zone is that man is the ultimate standard. There isn't any continuity between those two positions. Try as you might, you can't get these two together. And that's what's been wrong, we believe, with a lot of the work even done in evangelical circles, that it doesn't see clearly enough that you can't inherit pagan baggage and then throw it off the last minute. It eats you up from the inside. So what we're going to do then is we'll hope that you will read through the notes that you will look at those exercises because the first set of notes we're going to move to illustrates the principle in the area of origins. What we're going to do in chapter 1 is we're going to discuss, and I, I, I don't make apologies, some of this is, is reading that you won't find normally in religious literature. I actually have a first degree algebraic equation on one of the pages. But the reason I put it there is because if you read Time magazine, that's the level they write, okay? Time Magazine and Newsweek write at what they believe sells magazines. So we Christians ought to at least be able to handle that kind of stuff. And we uh, welcome questions and answers and so on. But for tonight, we want to close on time. And I want to uh, urge you to uh, read through that material and uh, pay particular attention to the scriptures that we're going to be covering in those exercises because there's some key questions there on origins. Why they're very important. Why Jesus and Paul started with origins. Our Father, we're thankful that you have preserved the text for us. And we're so thankful that you offer us salvation and grace. And that were it not for your grace, then we too would be in rebellion, a profound rebellion against you. And we ask that as we work through the text, you would get out of our lives these pockets of rebellion that still remain. That where we want to decide what is true, what is false, we will decide whether we like this or we don't like that, instead of letting you decide. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's cleansing work in our lives. In Christ's name.